You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, most gracious, ever merciful, welcome, good afternoon, assalamu alaikum, and may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all from Tuesday afternoon, drive time show with myself, Kayum, and joining me is Brother Saad. Good afternoon, welcome, assalamu and peace be on you, brother. Assalamu alaikum, Zakrahanisab, how are you? No, my name is not Hanif. Oh, sorry, Kayum, sir. <laughs> Normally, I'm Hanif, sir, with me. That's right. Yes, I did. I was waiting for that. We have talking about Hanif. May God give him long life and health. We have with him, with us online, brother Hanif. Yeah. Good afternoon, Zanikum. Peace be on you. Wa alaikum aslam. It's so great that you're in the studio there, and I'm not there. <laughs> See, brother, you, you and brother Saad have got a good team. He thought he called me Hanif, and I thought, ah, oh, it's, it's it's my honour, my pleasure. You it just me. shows the love is there, right? Of you? course, of course, man. The love will always be there. Good to have all of you gentlemen with us, as always. Two fantastic topics that we're going to be talking about this afternoon. Um, the first hour, we are going to be talking about immigration. Um, is the crackdown and illegal on, on illegal immigrants fair? We would love to hear from you. If you have anything to say, if you want to contribute, give us a call. 0208-687-7878. Join us on our social media platforms at Voice of Islam UK. Or feel free to email us on uh, via our website, www.voiceofislam.co.uk. Um, and in the second hour, we're going to be talking about kindness. Um something that is a um, characteristic of every single individual. It's just a question of bringing it out. Um, and that is something that we need to bring out um, in order to deal with the topic of the first hour, which is immigration. Brother Hanif, um, I know this is a subject you know a lot about. I know you've done a lot of um, fantastic work uh, for people who, um, in, in your previous life um, and current life, that uh, you, there's a lot of assistance you've provided What's what's this topic all about? What's what is it that we're talking about this this afternoon? Yeah, so I mean both topics. So I mean obviously you just finishing off the mental health aspect just before we get into the second hour. Yes, I mean we'll get into a lot more detail. But if you remember the lockdown for two years, that aspect of mental health became right at the front of people's minds because people were stressed out. People didn't know how to handle the situation. But actually, we can talk about this in in a way that if you can help someone out, you feel good about yourself. And by feeling good about yourself, you just spread the love and the peace and it kind of reduces the stress all around. I mean, that's the issue that we're going to kind of speak about. But yeah, definitely, it all came through COVID. So... What we're talking about today is on Monday, second, 22nd of August, 2022, a record uh, 1,295 people arrived in the UK after crossing the channel in small boats. And this is according to the Ministry of Defence statistics. The total who've made the crossing so far this year is over 22,000, nearly double what it was at the same point in 2021. And migrants are often told by smugglers that in travelling to UK will be safe and easy However, in reality, the journey puts people at risk of injury, abuse, exploitation, death. Um, the journey is not only expensive but dangerous. Men, women, children have died during the um, during their trips in trying to get to United Kingdom in small boats, which are probably um, boats which are equipped to take on about six, seven people. But um, it's it's uh, normally double, if not triple, that. 
Um, earlier this month, yeah. Suella Braverman, um, the former Home Secretary whose father migrated to the United Kingdom from Kenya, was expected to lay out her strict plans to deal with the illegal immigration, whilst also promising to ensure genuine asylum seekers are settled in the country. A law allowing the deportation of illegal immigrants and effectively banning them from claiming asylum would be introduced by the Home Secretary, or the former Home Secretary now, as she unveils plans for another crackdown on channel crossings. Um, Brother Hanif, is... um, is it legal? Illegal? Has there that new law that was that that was kind of making the news? Did it ever pass? Or kind of with the turmoil in our domestic politics has been so much that um, things are things have been kind of all over the place over the past few months. I mean, you're right. I mean, you're exactly right to ask that question because actually, with all of the media frenzy around this and the airplane that was on the platform to fly off to Rwanda actually didn't leave. Um, it kind of reminds me of the Windrush generation that were also waiting in an aeroplane, waiting to fly off the platform. I mean, it's just like a, a very common theme. Now, I, in the personal view, and also the lawyers at that time that prevented the plane from taking off clearly said that this was um, against human rights and the way in which it was done. I mean, if you are fleeing your country and you are coming on this journey, I know you mentioned about crossing the channel on the boats, but it still doesn't um, stop that so many people come on the freight uh, vehicles as well and hiding away in very dangerous, precarious situations as well. So, yeah, no, uh, this is not right, uh, not legal, or they'll try and make it illegal but obviously the situation when you arrive in the united kingdom and you haven't come with your papers what they're trying to do is to send you directly to rwanda and process your immigration there but 100 percent, you still will not be allowed to come back to the uk although you've crossed the english channel and you're already in the waters that are controlled by the united kingdom so that is where it does not make sense Brother Saad, you need to jump in any time, man. It's me and Eve on the radio here. No, but when we have two experienced <laughs> speakers there, I was like, okay, I'll take, take a step back. No, right no, now. no. Take a step yeah. forward, yeah, man. Take a step forward. We yeah, want yeah. We want to hear you. So, yeah, I was, you know, when you guys were talking about it and when you even mentioned regarding the boats and everything, I remembered one of my relatives, he he was coming the same way. Oh, wow. He, le- he, he left Pakistan and around Egypt area, he went missing. Since um, it's been four years, we have no idea where he is. Wow, really? Yes. Gone missing in action. Here. Gone missing. And remember when that boat turned over in Egypt area? That's right. We believe and we think he might be on that same boat coming towards Italy. Wow. Oh, and wow, wow. Yes, Crazy. I know, I know quite a few because I'm first generation from um, migrant parents who were born outside mm-hmm. Pakistan. So I don't know how the struggle they faced coming to these uh, countries normally. So there is no recourse you can take to find out if he was on the we boat? We tried or? Red Cross, we tried many charity organizations, but they said we don't have the... No records. S- no records about him. And that's the best guess. They said he might be on that boat. On that boat. I know people who have traveled from, who have walked from Pakistan via Greece and came into um, Europe. Months and months and months, months, and months of walking. Months. And the stories they tell you is shocking and it's scary at the same time. And I was like, okay, but they're leaving 
their families behind, everything behind to have a better future somewhere else. Because, you know, there's sometimes difficulties over there. They are unable to do something there. So they go out and even risk their, risk their lives well, to they, start. There you have it, a perfect example of Brother Saad and, and uh, you know, and, and his family member where members are going missing. It's been four years, no news, and there's no recourse. There's no way to find out. Yes, no. And the, imagine this, that what desperate situation people must be in even risking their life at a blink of an eye if it means getting away from danger. How much danger must they really be in if they're doing that? So next time you question why people are doing this, put yourself, try and put yourself in that position of what hardship. I mean, Brother Saad is talking about people he knows. He, they walked from Pakistan. That's, a, that's like a eight-hour flight. That's months and months of walking through different countries, different borders, um, most probably different um, police authorities and police cells that, that you probably get arrested, get released, get arrested, yes. um, verbal abuse, physical abuse that you suffer. And if you, for example, you're unable to pay those um, people or bring you over, they're, they're called agents, right? Mm. If you're unable to pay them on that time frame you've given them, someone from Pakistan or someone from here is unable to pay them, they leave you behind. And wherever it might be in a jungle, wherever they must hide you, they just leave you behind and say, okay, that's it. Up to here, we can take you. The rest, make your own way now. Wow, wow. Absolutely madness. Absolutely madness. Let's go talk to our first guest of the afternoon. We have with us Sarah Berry, who is a volunteer in northern France um, um, since 2015. Good afternoon. Welcome. Assalamu and peace be on you, Sarah. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> um. Sarah, we we always hear these words, migrants, economic migrants, refugee, asylum seeker. What is a refugee? And is it different from migrant, economic migrant, and all these different synonyms that we apply to this word? Well, firstly, a refugee is a person who is fleeing a, a dangerous situation to themselves. This could be an environmental situation. This could be flooding, for example. It could be war. It could be persecution for a variety of reasons. Um, the, the word, I suppose, truthfully, is the word refugee. Someone is seeking refuge, hence they become a refugee. Now, um, in the sense of migrants, I think it's a, it's a misconception. Migrant, the difference really between migrants is that so a migrant is someone who chooses to move. A refugee is someone who has been forced to do so. So it, for me, it's a very fine line. And I also feel sometimes it's not actually for us to judge who is one or the other. Um, truthfully, at the end of the day, if someone feels the need to leave until until they actually arrive at their destination, it's not really for us to judge why they chose to do so. That's why we have systems in place to, if you like, vet people. Um, an asylum seeker, in my opinion, is someone that's finally made it to the country that they would like to settle in for whatever reason and whatever country. And then as such, they, they ask to seek asylum. And that then makes them an asylum seeker until hopefully they're given the status that they have leave to remain, in which case they just become you and I, which is really who they are anyway. Just you and I in a different country. Thank you, Sarah, for you know, the clarification on refugee and between migrants. My question is, you know, we have refugees arriving in the UK on boats and there are quite a number of people who come on boats, even via France sometimes. Um, do, do you know why to do this? And 
you know how dangerous this is and why they especially do this? It's an excellent question, thank you. Um, I think the, the, the situation searches, though, it's actually not that many people. I know it seems it might come across as many people. That's also the rhetoric the government would like you to believe. It is not that many people. And the amount mm-hmm. of people that actually come to the UK to seek asylum or to seek refuge choose your words whichever you way is less than four percent so actually it's not that many people why they make these awful journeys it's simply because there is no safe way to do so if you have come through the various countries they have come from and gone through and if you like the final destination is northern france the, the literally the blockade to actually getting to the uk mm-hmm. um and unfortunately there is no way to leave calais or dunkirk or even any part of northern france to get to uk Legally. Now, it shouldn't be illegal. It's not illegal to claim asylum, but you can't actually claim asylum until you're in the country you wish to be. So if it is the UK, the only way to do this is to try and either get on a lorry or go on a boat. Now, this is an absolutely dreadful policy because ultimately, of course, as we know, people will die in doing so. And if they do not die, they're always, always risking their lives. Now, we could actually treat people with the respect that they deserve by actually, as we have proved, if you like, with the Ukraine situation, whereby visas were issued and then the biometrics are done on arrival, obviously then the claim to stay in the UK or not, that then goes further afterwards. So you can prove who somebody is with the biometrics. So what we could do is give that option to everybody who is saying they need to claim asylum and they would like to do so in the UK and we can offer these safe routes for every person that feels that this is where they want to be and again it's not that many people and the majority of people that do choose to come to the UK they generally come because um, they've either got family members that are already settled Mm. in the UK they can speak English so it's their second language that makes them feel more confident about starting their life all over again in a country that they can at least express themselves sometimes it's simply a case of believing that the UK is a safer country which is genuinely the truth from where they've left and for whatever reason mm-hmm. and they believe that the UK can offer them the opportunity to actually start again and and be able to continue a safe life Okay, you know, uh, I'm sorry I'm cutting, um, Hanif, and I know Hanif Saab wants to ask a few questions also. You said there are less than 4% of refugees who want to come to the UK. And do you know yes. what? You know how many in numbers there are in total, like in peoples, like 1,000, 2,000, 4,000, just to get a clearer picture for the audience? So, okay, at the moment then, um, I've only just recently uh, come back from Calais and Dunkirk, and in total throughout the the two areas, you're talking less than 2,000 people. Um, But these people, families as well, you know, everyone talks, everyone has this rhetoric these days, or the government tried to push this rhetoric that a refugee is a bad person. I, I fail to understand in any language, in any country, how asking for help is deemed illegal and lawful, unlawful and not acceptable to do. Now, we, we see an awful lot of women and children and men, and to be honest, whether they're 15-year-old children, men, male, or they're 60-year-old men, or they're any age in between, if someone is saying, I need help, I need support, I've left my country for whatever reason, surely our job is to sit there and say, okay, let's make this a safe place for you to be, let's hear your situation, and and let's keep you safe until we can assess whether or not you're telling us the truth, because there is a small portion of people, and it's a massive minority, serious minority of people, that perhaps are just economic migrants. Again, that's still not illegal, 
but it is different to being a refugee, hence we have systems in place. But truthfully, if you look at the big picture, it's not that many people, and yes, it's a fluid situation, but no more, as I said, than a maximum of 2,000 people are in northern France. Many people actually come to France, mm-hmm. and they're in Paris claiming asylum. So it's not a case that they see France as the stepping stone to the UK. They actually are quite happy to claim asylum in France because France actually has a far kinder and more supportive asylum system and benefit system than there is in the UK, which also dispels the rumours and the myths that people just come for money or come for benefits because actually the system in France is much kinder. But again, it's the language. Uh, I'm English living in France and I can assure you it was my choice to come here and it's still a struggle on a daily basis depending on the situation I'm facing. Now, to be told I have no choice but to sit there and stay here when actually I should have the right to sit there and say, well, actually, I'd like to go where I feel I'm able to be understood, where I might actually finish my education and and, and get a job and be able to, to sort of provide for my family, I think is everyone's options and everyone should have the right to do so. Sure. I mean... Sarah, I mean, I'm finding your answers absolutely fantastic. The the thing that I want to ask, pick you up on, is this language, uh, especially yes. this language that has been said through politically. I mean, I, I appreciate language. You know, if you speak French, you speak English, it, it makes sense. But the language I want to talk about is the language politically. It's easier for people to say that refugees are a problem, migrants are taking one's job. This narrative is not helpful at all because when we look at the contribution that many of these refugees and migrants have done, especially when you get a a workforce of young adults who are strong, who are eager to learn and be educated, wouldn't they just be a massive benefit to our society in the future? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, the, 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 the rhetoric from the government, to be honest, is extremely damaging. And, and of course, it's done to be so. Far better for, for Joe Bloggs on the street of the UK to blame uh, someone requesting assistance, so a refugee, than to blame the government for all the reasons that they have problems accessing various services themselves. So yeah. the government have done an excellent job of making sure that they, they repeat this rhetoric that, and, and they imply that there's thousands of people daily and they're, and they're all horrible people that we can't trust and it's all a horrible situation when in fact women and children and families and young men are no different in any country there's good and bad everywhere that doesn't mean a refugee is anything that their 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 dangerous language is perceiving them to be um we absolutely we have always needed to have migration we have always needed to have people coming in let's face it so many people because they just want to work and provide for themselves and provide for their families and pay into a system they're happy to 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 work very very hard sometimes far harder than we are they're happy to provide so much knowledge we can gain so much from opening our minds and our and our hearts and our lives by listening to people and living with people that actually come from a different background it's not a negative it's a positive it only enriches us it can't damage us yeah and just before i let uh let you come in with with the last question uh, but i just wanted to just I, i've done a lot of work with refugees um so many of the boroughs up and down the countries they kind of first started with the syrian refugees i mean it used to call it welcome syrian refugees and the name of the place and when we started welcoming the refugees from syria we found them to be extremely educated individuals that have just had an extremely bad turn that didn't need much effort on for help for them to be integrated into into society as well 
I mean, how best do you think that we can help the refugees um, integrate into our society? I think the first thing we can do is we can challenge the government to stop taking so long in assessing people's claims. When you claim asylum in the UK, you have no legal right to work. Um, no legal right to work means also you have no yeah. way of actually providing yourself in, a, in accommodation. So as such, as we see in the papers, there are many, many people having to be housed in hotels and a lot of these places are substandard. I mean, there are some good ones and there are some bad ones. But at the end of the day, they are very, they have given very little money. They've given, they're given no support and other than charity yeah. stepping into the gap that the government have left. Um, what we need to do is we need to challenge the government to actually stop taking two, three, sometimes four, five years to allow someone to hear their claim and actually put this through forward. If it's been proven to have been done for the Ukrainians, whereby you ask for a visa, you come over, you have your biometrics done, and straight away you can go into education, you can go into a job, you can do something. And also, it's, it helps the mental health of every individual to be able to do something, whether it's learning the language, whether it's going back to school to continue into the education you've missed out on, whether it's to sit there and further your life with degrees, or just to go into the work that you choose, be it a career you had before or a new one you wish to take on. We need to make sure people can actually access this more or less immediate once it's been ascertained that they are who they say they are and then let them live their lives. Holding up their claims, it's extremely damaging to their mental health. It's also costing it's costing the government millions of pounds unnecessarily. We have the infrastructure, we have the money. What we need to do now is put things into place so that we can allow people to come here maybe two, three months down the line and then start working. People are not allowed to do this. They're not allowed. Only after 12 months of waiting for to hear their asylum be heard, yeah. which inevitably never happens, are you allowed to take possibly some menial jobs. Now, there's nothing wrong with menial jobs, not at all, but there's very few choices of what people can do, and they're not able to access so much support. And it is costing money, money that we literally do not need to provide. We do not need to do all this. We could allow people to come over, give them the support to sit there if they haven't got the language skills, set them up with language um, education lessons. We can sit there. There's a lot of people who've been proven throughout the whole of the country who are happy as volunteers to help and support people to, to get on and be able to fend for themselves. So I don't understand why we don't harness those wonderful people while we don't sit there and stop this this vile attitude of keeping people waiting for, for years whilst also housing them in the most subhuman places at times. We're giving them no money and no positivity. We're, we're, we're making a very bad situation far worse and it's completely unnecessary. Um, yeah. Sarah, I mean, Brother Hanif uh, talked about, um, uh, you know, the, the, the polit- political side and the political rhetoric that, that the government is going on about. Um, I have a question is, for governments, is it by law they have to give asylum? Is it is it a choice a country has, or they can say, "Well, we're not going to give asylum to anyone." Well, you see, unfortunately, I'm not as educated enough. I don't think to answer that correctly. Mm-hmm. There, it's not illegal to claim. It's not illegal to ask for asylum, and that that's the first rhetoric that's incorrect. They say, "Oh, he's illegal, illegal immigrants or illegal asylum seekers." That's rubbish. It's not illegal to claim yeah. asylum. So straight away, they've made that rhetoric like, oh, "These are bad people. They're not doing something legally." Oh, we don't want them. So well, straight away, they've set the back up. Now, whether it's legal or not to sit there and claim, of course, it's legal to claim asylum. It's something the, uh, the convention for um being able to do this i mean all these countries sign these agreements i'm sorry my brain's gone to mush but i mean at the end of the day i don't know the exact legalities of the uk system 
Thank you. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I don't actually know about the, the UK. I mean, I haven't lived in England for a very long time. So apart from anything else, it wasn't great before I left, but certainly it's changed dramatically <laughs> since I have. Um, but truth of the matter is, how can any person be illegal? That's true. Uh, it's true. I mean, the reason I asked the question um, is uh, because... Um, why did I ask the question? Now my brain's gone mush. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible, isn't it? You've got so much you want to say, and all of a sudden it just goes blank. <laughs> now, this is it. They talk about safe passage. How are people supposed to get safe if you don't open even qualified doors or some kind of access? Then what's the point of talking about safe passages? Because they like to sit there. The government like to say to you, "Ah, but they didn't claim safe passages, so they're not a legal person." So, in which case, we're doing the right thing by trying to shit them off or stop them coming at all. And it's all about it's all about poisoning the minds. You know, if they don't give the full truth and the full system of actually, well, you know, for example, you've just said, how can you get safe passage? Well, exactly. How? Yeah. It's extremely rare. The only way to do so is usually to claim, was to try and claim um, a visa from the country you're leaving to the country you wish to go to. But these, that there is so few and far between. I mean, we're talking hundreds a year, if you're lucky, from certain countries only can apply. Now, if you're literally, um, you're being persecuted, for example, the amount of people we see that have literally have family members, have awful, awful, I'm sorry, I wouldn't speak about it on the radio, things done to them, and so they've been forced to leave. You don't think, ah, before I go, I would just make sure I pop into my local... Um, centre to apply for a reason to let the whole world know I want to actually leave this situation and whilst I'm doing that I must make sure I pick up my passport uh, proof of ID or I must get my, my birth certificate marriage certificate any any bumps that could help validate a claim because if you're in a situation where you're fleeing for your life you are fleeing you don't stop to sort of pack a suitcase and get everything that a government feels you should take to prove that you're actually a legal asylum seeker in the end it's, it's ridiculous in its in its soon as it's said because there's a, there's a wall coming there's a bomb dropped next to you you know you survive that you're not going to quickly try and find all the legal documents you might need so you could leave to prove that actually your life is in danger if you actually have uh, a, a fact um a faction sitting there and saying if you don't join our gang and you go and join that gang over there then we're going to do this to your family but if you go over there and then the other gang's saying that to you and in effect in one small area you have sometimes up to six, seven factions saying do this or else, what do you do? Whichever option you go for, you are going to sit there and lose a loved one or possibly your own life. You don't have time to try and find a legal safe passage because at the end of the day, there are none. The only way is to get out with your life and as much as you can at the time. And then, of course, you then reflect and think, okay, where can I now go? Some of the people, the resilience of the people that have left different countries, I'm in awe of. I, honestly, I think to myself, I would be rubbish. You know, we, we couldn't have something happen to me because I'd be like, oh, God, here we go. I couldn't do I couldn't help myself. I wouldn't know what to do. I wouldn't be able to fend for myself. And I meet people who absolutely i am in awe of they are so brave and, and we are saying actually we don't want you these are the people we absolutely do want because despite everything they believe in something better than what they've left behind and they're doing everything they can to strive for it and what they've been through to get this far is phenomenal well sarah i could go on and on my hats off to you as well i'm in awe of you because you are giving up time and and you're putting your effort in and volunteering in assisting these people who are coming um, from from dire circumstances. So may God reward all of your endeavours in assisting all these people. Um, and may you have a fantastic afternoon and may God be with you. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Thank, Thank you. you.
Let's go straight on to our second guest of the afternoon. We have with us Peter William Walsh, who is Senior Researcher at the Migration Observatory at University of Oxford. Good afternoon. Welcome. Assalamu alaikum. And may the peace, may peace be on you. How are you this afternoon, Peter? I'm very well, thank you. Delighted to be on your show once more. I was on six months ago, and it's always yeah. a pleasure. Fantastic. I really appreciate your time, Peter. It's, it's amazing. I mean, we want to pick your brains about this new scheme that the government are trying to push through because uh, for us we've been talking a little bit about it but you know a lot more about it I mean uh, this opposition to the scheme is based on the violation of human rights I mean can you can you touch on it and explain to us how does it breach um, human rights and at the end of it why is it going to be so problematic and here I'm talking about the Rwanda refugee proposition yeah so <clears throat> the UK, it's a signatory to the UN Refugee Convention, right? But what's really interesting about that convention, there's nothing in there that says a country like the UK can't send asylum seekers to safe countries to have their application processed there instead. But the key question is, is Rwanda a safe country? And that's what the human rights challenge is that challenge the legality of the Rwanda policy as a whole, that's what they focus on, whether Rwanda is indeed a safe country for asylum seekers. And there's a particular article of the European Convention on Human Rights, Article 3, that's the right not to be subjected to inhuman or degrading treatment. And the argument that's being made in courts now in the UK is that given Rwanda's human rights record, there is a risk of that human right not to be subjected to inhuman or degrading, degrading treatment being violated. I mean, it's incredible when they say that a country like Rwanda has got best human rights um, policies in place. When we know anyone who understands the basics of ABC can do an easy comparison. And, um, and also the countries that they're obviously leaving, like, for example, Eritrea, is, is, is not far from Rwanda in the, world scheme, in the global scheme of things. I mean, it's uh, incredible if they would think that that would be OK. I mean, there is another argument, um, is that how expensive is it to charter flights to Rwanda in which refugees can be deported? I mean, I know what, an airplane hasn't left yet. Um, can you also elaborate on this? What are the costs, the monetary costs? Because the reason I wanted to ask this question, because we've read reports that when Australia tried to do it and put refugees on boats, they had to abandon that because the cost was way too much. Yes, it's very expensive. I mean, the UK's first chartered flight, that was reported to have cost half a million pounds. That hasn't been well, confirmed, by the way, uh, but that seems like a reasonable estimate, and I'll break it down for you in a moment. By the way, we don't know how much of that money the government actually got back, and now the company that was going to charter that flight have said, we are pulling out. We're not going to do any chartered flights to Rwanda. Now, that particular flight, that was a Boeing 767, that's a capacity of about 250 people. That's a big plane. Estimated costs about £5,000 for an hour of flight. It's a 10-hour flight to Rwanda, but this plane came originally from Spain. It went to the UK via Germany. That adds to the flight time. The insurance costs for chartered flights of this kind are very high. But actually, the flight itself is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the overall costs. 
There's also the administrative costs of finding and removing people to Rwanda, processing all the required paperwork. The overall scheme, just to get people on that flight, is also very expensive. And that's before we get into the costs of actually housing and looking after these individuals in the Rwandan facilities. That's uh, Peter, you know, um, all these costs um, you've been speaking about, um, that's why there are people who oppose um, um, regarding immigration also and argue that the immigrants do not contribute to the economy um, which they are bought in and they are costing us at the same time 500,000 pounds, as you just mentioned. So do you agree with the sentiment or not? that they're not contributing anything to our society or uh, economy? No, I disagree. The evidence is fairly clear that when we look at immigrants as a whole, mm -hmm. they make a net fiscal contribution. They contribute more through the taxes that they pay than they take out of the system through things like health care and benefits and so on. And I think they contribute in two particular ways to the economy. The first is that, and you may not believe this the brightest and the best people in the world they're not all british you know i work in a university the best researchers in the world they come from all sorts of countries across the world so some of the best workers mm -hmm. will be immigrants so that means immigrants they make a contribution at the higher end of the skill spectrum in finance research medicine business and so on and then at the other end of the spectrum you know lower paid jobs especially before Brexit, people from the EU, they were doing jobs that were in shortage and which local resident-born Brits did not seem to want to do at the rates of pay mm -hmm. that were offered. I'm thinking of fruit picking, social care, factory work, cleaning, very challenging jobs and with big shortages because Brits were not doing them. So immigrants also make a big contribution there too. So, you know, Peter, that was one of my questions also, I was in my, which was in my head. You know, all these um, jobs, which, are, as you said, low-paid jobs, isn't it better to offer these uh, immigrants um, who have migrated here these jobs instead of spending another 500,000 plus pound on sending them back and be processed and go back to their prospective countries? Well, that's not really for me to say. That's a government position. And it's also somewhat separate because the people being sent to Rwanda, they're asylum seekers. Mm -hmm. And actually asylum seekers, while they're waiting for a decision on their asylum application, they're not allowed to work. Yes. So sometimes it's helpful to separate asylum seekers from ordinary immigrants and they are doing these jobs at higher rates than the British people and they're not easy jobs at all. So they really make a contribution there in my view. Okay, thank you. And you know, the UK Nationality and Borders Act. Do you know what does it mean, uh, and uh, what does it mean for the refugees in the UK? Well, in short, it's bad news for refugees. It says if you came to the UK from France, which of course people crossing the English Channel are doing, we're going to try to prevent you from claiming asylum in the UK, and we might remove you to Rwanda or another country and that's one of the big challenges there it requires cooperation with countries to take asylum seekers back and the only country we have an agreement with right now is rwanda so we're not even if the rwanda policy goes ahead we're not expecting that many people to be sent there but it also means something mm -hmm. else it means that even asylum seekers who are successful in their claim they're given refugee status the nationality and borders act actually says we're going to give you fewer rights 
if you arrived in the UK having taken a dangerous route, and that would include travelling by small boat. But this just reminds us of what the guest was saying earlier. There is no legal way to come to the UK for the specific purpose of claiming asylum, and that's why people are forced to take these dangerous journeys in the first place. Um, Peter, is that not against the Dublin Agreement? So, the thing with the Dublin Agreement now is since Brexit we're no longer a part of that ah. Dublin arrangement. So we were a part of this Dublin arrangement that actually allowed us to transfer asylum seekers to the first safe country they travelled through, mm -hmm. but now we're no longer a part of the Dublin arrangement, and that's made it much more difficult for us to send asylum seekers to other countries, which is exactly the idea behind the Nationality and Borders Act, but it's going to be very hard to do without those agreements with other countries. Peter, international human displacement is is actually a norm if one was to look at historically the way the world has worked. I mean, yeah. a lot of countries have uh, kind of established because of movement of people, and with the, the with the with the wars and the and the and and the kind of natural disasters around the world and the different yeah. uh, effects of climate change even. Um, have uh, forced people to move. So, Europe, especially United Kingdom, it, it the rhetoric is always we've taken so many people. Whereas, if you look at uh, Jordan, Lebanon, you look at Turkey, they have taken millions and millions of people. Oh. Whereas, UK is like minuscule. So, why is this? Is it uh, that people just don't know the facts or? it's all about finances end of the day or what is it what is what is the problem um um in in the uk wanting not wanting to accept migrants yeah it's really the whole asylum system it's a global system and it is based on every country including the uk sharing responsibility it completely falls apart without that and that's because as you just suggested refugee crises like the war in ukraine like the instability in afghanistan they're localized crises and they produce sometimes millions of refugees and it would not be at all desirable if only neighboring countries look after those refugees so the whole system is fundamentally based on the idea that that responsibility is shared and that's something that critics of the government's current position would say is too quickly forgotten in this present period. Peter Walsh, thank you so much for taking time out this afternoon and coming on to the Drive Time Show. As always, have a fantastic day ahead. May peace be with you, sir. Thank you very much. That's very kind. Have a lovely evening yourself. You too. And that was Peter Walsh, who is a senior researcher, senior researcher at the Migration Observatory at the University of Oxford. Um, Saad. Yes. Kyo. Yeah, that's my name. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll come back to you. Let's go to our. Let's go to our, our last. Those, so, so everybody knows our names now. Yes. <laughs> let's go. Out, let's go to our, our final guest of the hour. We have with us uh, Claire Mosley, who um, set up Care for Calais after travelling to the Calais jungle in 2015, and being horrified at what she saw there. She uh, lived full time in Calais, working to relieve the suffering of many refugees trapped in limbo at the UK border. Good afternoon. Welcome. Assalamu alaikum and peace be on you, Claire.
Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you for taking time out and coming on to the show. Claire, why do people leave France, for example? Um, I mean, isn't France a safe country? Well, the, the first thing to say is that the vast majority of them don't. Um, there's only a small number of people that try to get to the UK every year. And many countries in Europe take a lot more refugees than the UK does. Um, so most of them are staying in one of the best countries that they get to. The main reasons that we hear for people trying to get to the UK, the biggest one is that they have family or friends there. Because, you know, when um, terrible things happen to you, like wars, um, people, family matter and people want to be with their family. So that is the biggest reason that we hear. And then there's other reasons, like, for example, language. So if somebody speaks English and they think they're going to have a life and a future in England, that is a really big incentive for them wanting to come to the UK because language is a big factor in integration. I mean, thanks for that, Claire. I mean, I, I had a very basic question that if I was, say, sitting in a war-torn country or an area where I felt threatened in my life, why, why don't I just come um, in a normal way, get on an aeroplane and just fly into the UK directly? Why do I have to walk for months and months to walk across Europe to get to, say, the United Kingdom? Why, why can't I just come through safe routes? Well, the problem is that for most of them, there aren't any safe routes. Um, unfortunately, travelling unofficially is part and parcel of being a refugee because if they're escaping from a country that's run by a dictator, for example, that dictator is not going to give them the passport or the visa that they need in order to leave because they don't want them to leave. If it's the, if it's the government that's treating citizens badly, they're not going to give them the means to travel and leave legally. Um, people lose their documents in wars, you know, people, people's houses yep. are blown up and they're running away from bombs, they don't have time to get the right documents. So, so having to travel illegally is actually part of being a refugee and it's not really fair to blame them for that or penalise them for that because being a refugee is something that happens to you, it's not your fault, you know, it's just a case of where you happen to be born and, and so to somehow blame them for, for that thing happening to them is really not in any way fair. Yeah. I mean, do you think climate change is going to have a bigger effect rather than having war-torn countries as well, forcing people to, uh, you know, leave their countries? Most unfortunately, yes, it is. Um, and it's, it's going to be an even bigger debate, isn't it? Because, I mean, what's the difference between somebody having to leave their home because they're afraid of a war? But, you know, if you get to the point of, starvation because of famine or something that's happened ecologically and you're scared of death in that way how is that any different than being scared of a war you know it's still a really terrible thing it's still not your fault and it's still yeah. kind of an absolute isn't it it's still something that's yeah. frightening enough for you to have to leave yeah and, and you're right and then i would agree with you but just before uh, i let you go i mean we're seeing so much famine, so much war all over the world. There are so many different people crossing over into safer areas. Some of the pictures that we get seen on TV are young, male, maybe looking for work and not actually from a war-torn country. But actually, what are you seeing? Are you seeing it's families, men and women, and even babies? Well, first of all, what we most definitely do see and what all the evidence supports is that the people who are coming through Calais 
are definitely genuine refugees. The vast majority of them have their asylum claims granted, and that's after a process which is, is heavily weighted against them. So, you know, it, it is people who are fleeing the worst things in the world. Um, there are more men than women, but there's very good reasons for that. Um, one is because of the things that they're running from. So, for example, in some of the countries that they come from, the men might be constricted, constricted for forced labour yeah. or taken as child soldiers. So, you know, when they get to a uh, sort of age of 13, 14, their mothers will tell them to run away. Another reason is the journeys that they come on. I mean, they're crossing places like Libya that are absolutely lawless. But, you know, it would be a woman would be very hard pressed to cross Libya without being raped. People get beaten and killed crossing Libya. Um, it's, mm -hmm. it's simply not a journey that a woman can make. And quite often these men are making the journey in order that they can either send some money back to their wives and their daughters and their mothers or even better try to bring them safely afterwards wow. if they do get asylum so that they're doing it in order to help their families and you know and that's a very brave thing to do yes so clearly as you just mentioned it the men who come here they are providing for the families back home so is it fair to crack down on these illegal migrants i'm, I'm sorry is it fair to to have a, like a crackdown on those illegal migrants who have come to this country to provide for the families at home? It absolutely isn't, because like I said, if you, if you are a refugee, it's not your fault. You know, it, it, it's an accident of birth. It's not that you have done something wrong. And um, method of travel is not how you evaluate who is a refugee. Um, when, when you're deciding who is a refugee, it's all about what they're fleeing from and what's happened to them. It's not about how they travel. So to suddenly put this criteria on them, which is, how did you get here and does that mean that you're deserving? That's not fair at all and that's not what it's about or what it should be about either. <laughs> Claire, thank you so much for taking time out and coming on to the Drive Time Show. Have a fantastic evening and may peace be with you. Thank you, you too. Gentlemen, um, both of you guys raised some serious questions there. Um, um, and one question that comes to mind that... Uh, um, Brother Hanif asked was about the costs of resettlement of asylum seekers and His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed, the fifth caliph of the promised Messiah and head of the Amdiya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed, may Allah strengthen his hand, in Germany in 2018. He said people who have lived their lives and paid their taxes in a country, they are justified to ask whether it is fair that their contributions to the state are spent on resettling foreign immigrants as opposed to funding projects that are beneficial to existing citizens. His Holiness said that the refugees should consider themselves indebted to their host nations and its people, and the way to repay the favour is that they should seek to contribute to society as soon as possible, even if the only job they can do is basic labour work. His Holiness went on to say where this entering employment will enable immigrants to maintain their personal honor and dignity it will also be a means of relieving the burden on the state and removing the frustrations of the local people certainly every muslim should keep in mind that the holy prophet of islam muhammad may peace and blessings of allah be upon him said that giving hand is far greater than the one that takes his holiness said that in some cases immigrants received better benefits than tax-paying citizens, which led to a natural frustration amongst the public. 
advising host governments. Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed, the fifth caliph of the promised Messiah, may Allah strengthen his hand. He said, frustrations do not dissipate on their own because where there is frustration, there is always a reaction. Therefore, every government should implement sensible and fair policies that keep in mind the rights and requirements of citizens and immigrants alike. And that's the point, that's the kind of point we're discussing here, isn't it, Brother Hanif, that that there seems to be um, unjust and unfair policies that are being applied towards immigrants. Like I asked the question earlier of Sarah, is that it kind of leads and to benefits the incumbent uh, government to, to kind of implement policies that sometimes give the wrong impression. But actually, if you were an individual... Um, and you were leaving your country and you were given the opportunity, one, to earn some money and secondly, get, get an education, wouldn't you just work as hard as you possibly could to get educated and get a degree and then get a master's and maybe do a PhD and maybe solve some of the biggest problems that we have in society with the knowledge of that because you'd be much more hungry. Although these are long-term kind of thought processes, but actually we've got to look at the policies both in a short-term, medium-term, and a long-term. And that's where I believe the policies are not working right. And then I agree with what he's saying. And and, the, and what fantastic wise words of his holiness. Thanks. Um, Brother Saad, before the show, we were talking about, um, you know, um, not Islamic perspective, but religion and historically, if one was to look at the lives of all the prophets. Yes. Migration has been part and parcel of all religions, isn't it? All yes. prophets have migrated at one time or the other. Yes, that's correct. Even though the Prophet Wasallam, he, he has traveled from Mecca to Medina for a safer start again because mm-hmm. where he was facing persecution for the past 13 years, then Allah, Allah the Almighty said, okay, now it's time for you to travel. He granted then, him permission. Then that's that when, when Allah the Almighty granted him permission, then Holy Prophet Wasallam migrated to Mecca, uh, Medina. Because if one looks at historically Moses... Prophet Moses, yes. Prophet Jesus, from from the beginning of time, Prophet Adam. Yes. Migration has been part and parcel of their historical journey, which has been part and parcel of their prophethood, isn't yes. it? Yes. Even when we, when we look at the history, we have that when Islam came to Spain, even mm-hmm. that's that's all migration happening. Of course. Now and now, even in that, in today's society, we we call it as a global village now, right? Mm-hmm. You have someone from the UK traveling to Dubai. From Dubai, they're coming over here. One from Pakistan going to um, let's say America, and from America, they're going to somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So it's migration is happening on a constant basis. But the, the main thing here is for the refugees, we should always provide them safe passage wherever. There's any issues in any country, we should help them out in such a way so they can start again. And if they're here, just give them a restart button and click it, and event um, so they can start again and provide for the family uh, back home or to bring them over here. And and brother Hanif, you know we this this accusation in which one of our guests kind of tackled as well that that <coughs> this 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 issue of oh they come to claim benefits. Well, UK benefits are quite dire compared to European. So they come here and they're not looking for benefits, are they? You so rightly said when you dealt with, you worked with Syrian refugees who are mostly yeah. academics and graduates. So yeah. they're, they're just looking for that um, step up and that provision and that opportunity to be able to show their skills, isn't it? 
Exactly right. And I'll be really brief. And some of these uh, migrants or these people who are housed in various places were given a tiny allowance. They have to go to food banks. Hmm. And that's what they do. They go to food banks to uh, supplement what the government gives them uh, because they're in a situation where they can't earn any money. I mean, I just wanted to just say one thing for, I know we're right at the end here, mm. but if you remember Albert Einstein, a Nobel Prize winner, well mm. known for all of his scientific discoveries, discoveries, wasn't he a migrant? Didn't Wasn't he forced out of um, Germany? And mm. look, what he achieved. Look what he achieved. And, uh, you know, yeah. Um, I want to finish off the show with words um, from His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed, the fifth caliph of the promised Messiah. Um, may Allah strengthen his hand. He said, society should not reject genuine refugees who are suffering through no fault of their own. Society should not cast aside innocent people who only want the opportunity to live in peace and who desire to be good citizens and follow the laws of the land in which they live. Instead, we should be there to give a helping hand to those whose lives have been broken, who have been tormented, and who are utterly helpless, vulnerable, and defenseless. Let us prove our humanity. Let us show our compassion. Let us be there to shoulder the burdens of those who are in desperate need. Let's show some kindness. Um, you've been listening to The Drive Time with myself, Kayoum, Brother Zad, and Brother Hanif. Um, that uh, kind of gives us a segue onto our next hour where we're going to be talking about um, ab- about kindness. We're going to take a short break. We're going to do some messages, go to the news. So do stay tuned. Come back and join us when we come back and talk about kindness. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio, broadcasting on DAB and via the Internet 24 hours a day. Welcome back to what day is it today? Oh, 20th or 25th? Tuesday. <laughs> Tuesday. Today is Tuesday. Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to Tuesday Drive Time Show with myself, Kayoum. Joining me on the phone is Brother Hanif and in the studio, our young Imam, Brother Saad. Um, gentlemen, a fantastic first hour. Um, some some excellent um, information that we can relate to our listener. Um, for this next hour, we're going to be talking about kindness. And this is something that Brother Hanif touched on at the beginning um, of the last hour, which is the impact on mental health and if you want to contribute if you want to kind of share some of your remedies you might have some of uh, the solutions you might have found um with regards to mental health we would love to hear from you 0208-687-7878 um or you can share your um thoughts with us on our social media platforms at voice of islam uk or feel free to email us um via our website www.voiceofislam.co.co Okay, okay, I've got that wrong, haven't I? <laughs> www.voiceofislam.co.uk, <laughs> isn't it? Man, what's going on here today? Brother Hanif, what are you doing to me? Brother Hanif, let, I'm going to come to you. What? What is, what, introduce this top topic for yeah, our listener, sure. please. No, no, thanks. I mean, I really wanted to, uh, to look at and, and discuss this subject with you. I mean, the impact on, on mental health uh, is going back as far as... Uh, I can ever remember but in recent during the pandemic it has did it's been detrimental to people's happiness and uh, mental health and we discussed the program uh, last week me and Saad about um, I think it's liberate liberation of mental health meant that you don't have to solve everything with a pill uh, but there are other ways of being able to solve your mental health problems and whether you know you're a person that's affected in their families and friends or just ordinary people i mean 
their lives have been completely disrupted. But can you? Do you need to solve the mental health problems by getting a pill? So there are other ways of doing it, and this is exactly what it is that <coughs> we want to kind of talk about. There are alternatives, and you know, you mentioned it earlier about kindness towards yourself, and is another way to improve oneself. I mean, if you can show kindness to others, I'm sure people will show kindness back to you, and this social relationship can become so strong and bloom and it can boost a sense of meaning within one's life and also what's really important is is a purpose in life and when I do my work in the community I see so many people who work hard and have a purpose to work hard and I've even taken them out of poverty as well so one of the ways you can do it and most people you know you could argue the fact that more and more people have benefits than focusing on your own personal happiness. And I think you, we touched on this earlier before, didn't we? So this sensation that you have can last much longer. So you can have a constant feed of happiness if you just do goodness and work. So that's what we're trying to do. I mean, be, and I'm not trying to take away the real effects of mental health, but people do really suffer, have um, anxiety, are unable to cope in society, sometimes also need to be sections and sectioned and sometimes they've gone through personal abuse as well and that is where we need to constantly help and strive and have um, professional help but maybe if we can avoid getting to that stage by just helping one another and understand how kindness can also help so that's our kind of introduction to this topic in the Holy Quran chapter verse uh, chapter 10 verse 58 um, it says oh mankind there has indeed come to you an exhortation from your Lord and a cure for whatever disease there is in the hearts and a guidance and a mercy to the believers. Um, Arguably, helping others may have more benefits than focusing on personal happiness where the sensation lasts longer and encourages continuing acts of kindness. And kindness is not, uh, I mean, you know, kindness is so relevant to, as Brother Hani said, um, to, to the challenge of mental health. Um, before I bring Saad into it, Hanif, um, you know, me and you have kind of been, 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 you know, known each other for so long. Hasn't the, do you think the, I don't know what word is correct, but do you think um, mental health has changed over the decades? Hanif, can you hear me? Oh, sorry, was that was that to me? Sorry. Well, I haven't um, known I haven't known Saad for <laughs> decades because he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a no, baby. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is this is the advantage, right? Of if you're in the studio, you can just look at me and say, right. And if I'm because we don't have that luxury, but no, hundred percent. You know, mental health is something that when you just look at it and understand it, and you break the words up, it's just that mental health of your brain sometimes. It's like having a, a mental health or having a healthy physical body. Mm. So if you break it down that way, we've always had um, a mental health, but actually the way it's been described and the way people understand it more and more and the way science has moved on and the way it's actually introduced and try and solve the problems, they feel that having a, 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 an issue with your mental health is a severe biological imbalance in your body that then needs to be fixed by giving someone some medicine. 
And this is where science has developed. That's the only thing where I can feel that maybe it might have moved on, might have changed. But actually, everyone in all their life goes through massive amounts of illnesses, mainly physical, mainly um, on the stress of their health. And even society as well can, can create further problems and create people who are, become very vulnerable and they need help. So it's a really interesting question that you ask. Has it always been around? I'm sure it has, but it's just been packaged differently mm. and the problem has been solved differently. And so, yeah, I would say the answer to your question is yes. Absolutely. Brother Saad, what's yes. been the effects of COVID? I mean, I know we, we I know it's 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 something that we've spoken about so many times, yes. but it, it's still with us. I mean, a lot of people have this notion that COVID is gone and done with, but it's it's actually that the the, um, <clears throat> the warning signs um, for this winter has been uh, a double jeopardy by some uh, some uh, scientists and and medical experts saying that there's going to be um, a, a flu and and COVID. Um, not epidemic, but uh, there's going to be a surge in figures, so we need to be that much more careful. Um, what are the effects of COVID on mental health? So initially, when lockdown started in April 2020, right? <laughs> um, and uh, all of us, we were in a small... I was in my university that time, mm-hmm. and we were also locked down in that place, and we, was, we were staying there. But we had members of our community who needed our help at the same time. And what we did is we called out the members and asked them how they are. Do they have the medication? Do because at that time a vaccination wasn't available and no one knew what COVID was. Even when I had COVID and I lost my sense of taste and smell, by that time government hadn't even issued. Oh, you have these symptoms. That means you had COVID. Mm-hmm. And I was fine for the first day. The second day I was completely on my bed, and then for after like ten days later I was again normal a bit more healthier but I was unable to taste anything but I had no idea that I had COVID or not mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. later on what's happened we called up members of a community asked them how they are and some members who are even happy to even hear someone speaking to them it's like it's, this is the first time it has happened to us that we have been isolated from the community of just with our friends we are unable to talk to them anymore properly face to face and you just calling us today and asking how we are do you, do you need anything or should we provide you any groceries it's a small thing we, we even started for the elderly people and they were like yes if you can just help me out with this because I'm ill I can't go out and if you can bring me this and this and this and thank you so much and that impacted them in a, in a positive way instead they were at home depressed a bit and a bit saddened because they're unable to do their day to day tasks so through research, around 12,000 people, MIND states that those who struggled yeah. with mental health before the pandemic were the most affected as their challenges increased and the uncertainty of the future encouraged their fears. Struggles of loneliness among people, especially younger people, also helped to develop anxiety when faced with new social situations and they were unable to see friends and in some cases family members in order to maintain a healthy social atmosphere. I mean, I know it was... Um, a, a challenging um, yeah it was a challenging time I remember I mean I wasn't able to see my daughter for 11 months wow. and uh, and the effect that has on your mindset you know it's um, I'm sure brother Hanif will, will kind of mm-hmm. jump in here as well it's it's something you think you know um, you think it's never going to happen to you and then when it does it's 
um, it's it's like there isn't anybody who can kind of remedy what your mind goes through. It is it, it is uh, you know it is with the grace of God Almighty that uh, people um, who kind of um, suffered these these challenges were but able to um, uh, were able to come out of it in a in a in a positive mindset. I mean, when you talk about this struggle of loneliness, I mean, you make such a valid point. How much it affects your mind? I mean, there are some people in our society who live in a six feet by six feet room and the, and they look at stare at four walls for weeks and weeks and weeks and the only person that sometimes they get to speak to is someone who's delivering their medicine for them and that's probably the only life they have because they may be lonely they've lost a loved one they don't have uh, a strong network of uh, brothers sisters children it is a real big problem but also another point that you mentioned although you mentioned about your daughter which is very sad and I'm very sorry to hear that but also a situation where people couldn't see their loved ones in care homes and then the aspect of education there were so many children that suddenly had to be taught at home and didn't even have internet access so they were sharing mum's mobile phones data to do homework and there was a massive divide again that was recognised that people were not that connected. They were quite on their own. And then across the country, you saw the differences in children being able to, one, connect to school and be educated. And where you had areas where there was a lot of affluence, good schools, they were able to connect to their children and offer services to them. And outside the effect, the mental health that was created in young children increased because the resources couldn't get to them and we know now you mentioned mind earlier with that statistics of 12,000 people um, who struggle with mental health but now they are warning us that children are turning to self-harm and this potentially is increasing and it's an issue that we cannot ignore Saad what's your take on um, what's what what I mean you suffered um, COVID and you yes. suffered at a time when you didn't know what you had. Yes. What did that do to your mindset? So, I mean, for those 10 days, what, what I mean, you're young, you're healthy. Um, yes. Um, but as you said, you were kind of locked down in a, in a small area. Yes. What was your mindset at when you found out you had these symptoms and after you had recovered? So, when I when I was initially hit with COVID, I had no idea I had COVID. Mm-hmm. And what I used to do is I, I thought it's a normal flu because my parents didn't know about it. Because mm-hmm. if a mom finds out that I had COVID, she would be because I didn't. She I was would, unable she would be like any other mom. That, that's correct because I was unable to see her for six months myself mm-hmm. at that time. And if I told mom I have COVID at the very initial stage when they just announced it, that would be scary for her. Mm-hmm. So when this happened, what I used to do is I was like, okay, it's a flu because. Then I used to wake up, do like 10 press-ups, then go back to my bed and lay down for like another another half an hour, then go back again, do like another five sets of five Just, just for the benefit of the listener, he did press-up for one day. <laughs> for the rest of the nine days, he didn't have the energy. <laughs> no, I, what I used to do is every day just wake up, put my mindset into it, get, no, I am healthy, I'm fit. And I used to get up, do like five press-ups, 10 press-ups, do, no, do another oh. sets of something else, and then go back to my bed and lay down. And 
my friend who was uh, was next door to me he he had also covid and he was on his bed and we were scared for him at the same time get hmm. okay, what's happening to him and we used to like give him medicines um give him um all home remedies also you know you have um soups we used to make him soup and give it to him all that and with me i was like okay i'm ill but i'll i'll manage somehow cuz i tried to stay away from Ooh. pills the the reason i asked you because obviously you are the younger generation and mind yes. warns that negative coping mechanisms such as self harm yes are more likely to be used by young people and this is an issue that cannot be ignored i mean that's the that's also going coming on to that yeah. even you know um series you have on different platforms nowadays they you have young generations watching them netflix on amazon yes Prime, i was mentioning know, i was i was, I was, yeah, I was yeah, going yeah. to name any, anyone yes. <laughs> and there was a series which was really famous and it was even banned from schools um saying okay sh- young children shouldn't watch it there was mm. a um, series called 13 reasons why okay and it was regarding self harm um suicide and all that mm-hmm. and when when the young generation watched this okay then something clicks when oh i might have done this to someone oh this has this has happened to me also and then when they're quite in the room not speaking to anyone and they're thinking about their self and that has a negative in- impact also sometimes and but the best thing is you have to speak to someone brother hanif i know you have to rush off um, any um, f- i would love to hear your words before you do yeah i mean one of the greatest things about this radio show is that we talk about topics and we don't let them go away and and this issue is kind of left the media and people are talking about our third prime minister in less than 3 months so these issues need to be addressed we need to start picking up on them again and i hope with our new prime minister he picks up on this because this is a bubble i think we talk about waiting to burst it's already bursting and we need to find alternate um ways to solve the problem there are not enough resources there's not enough doctors who can talk to one and get the therapy and get the medicine we as a society need to change the people's outlook in life to to see that there are aspirations there for you we are there we are looking after you and don't worry we're going to put an arm around you it doesn't matter if you're vulnerable you're old you're young you're a child you're a single parent we will put our arm around you and we will look after you and we'll help you not only get on the first step of the ladder but climb the ladder so you can get out and you can prosper and you can continue and this all boils down to this issue of the increasing of the impact of mental health we can't solve every mental health issue with a pill with therapy we just don't have the resources so an alternative method needs to be found uh to help especially those that are in a real serious situation and, and you guys have mentioned it twice now this health harm that children are now turning towards we cannot let that happen we have to look after them so that's kind of my take on this whole whole subject really wonderful thank you brother hanif peace be on you um we've been talking about mind we've been quoting mind for the past 20 minutes or so let's go instead of uh, me and brother saad and brother hanif uh, quoting them let's go and uh, you know um, talk to somebody from mind we have the head of information at mind with us we've got stephen buckley good afternoon welcome assalamu alaikum and peace be on you stephen Hi, afternoon. Peace be upon you too. Thank you for taking time out and coming on to the show. Um, Stephen, COVID-19 has resulted in increasing mental health concerns around the world, especially for those um, vulnerable. How important 
has the availability of support and understanding for recovery? I, it's really, really important. Really, really important. Uh, you know, and I've, I was listening to the to the, the discussion uh, you were you were just having there, uh, and I think there's a, there's a lot of kind of uh, true things been been said in that discussion. You know, over the last few years, um, the, you know, there's been huge pressures on people's mental health with um, with COVID and with, and with lockdown. We've seen um, a huge amount of political instability in the UK, and that's had an impact on people. We've seen conflict around the world that's had an impact on people. And we're moving you know, more now into a space where cost of living is starting to have an impact and people are struggling to make ends meet. Uh, some families are struggling to put food on the table. So it, it's, it's perhaps no surprise that as, as a country, um, people's mental health has, has had, some, a lot, had a lot of challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also know, though, that the earlier someone can get support for their mental health problem, uh, the more effective it's likely to be. So it's it's really important that people do understand um, what's going on for someone, uh, and when they do seek help for a mental health problem, they can get the help that they might need. Uh, it's it's really important, and I, I think one of the other things that we've learnt at Mind is that this becomes a little bit of a, a virtual circle, a virtuous circle, that hearing and seeing other people talking about their mental health experience. Mm-hmm that it gives other people the confidence to, to talk about their own experience and to seek help uh, in ways that work for them. So it's really, really important that there is understanding when people feel they want to talk about their mental health. Equally, it's really important that the right kind of support is in place for them to, to give them the help that they need. Thank you, Stephen. You know, um, young people are more likely to use negative coping mechanisms when dealing with mental health. And with many young lives disturbed through the pandemic, what support has been offered to those struggling? Yeah, you're, you're right. It's, um, yeah, Minds Research during the pandemic found that young people seem to be particularly badly impacted. Mm-hmm. Uh, we found that around um, a third of, uh, of the young people who responded to our survey uh, used sort of negative coping mechanisms, whether that's self-harm, whether that's misuse of alcohol or misuse of drugs. Um, but, you know, a, a very sort of disturbingly high percentage of young people reported that they were using negative coping mechanisms during COVID. And, you know, the re- reasons behind that are perhaps not so surprising, you know. You know, we all missed our friends, didn't we, during those, those dark yes, lockdown days when we couldn't see people. Mm. You know, and I think teenagers particularly found, found that challenging. Um, we also found that young people who... Uh, were being locked down, they were missing their education and their school, they were wondering what was happening to their life chances, mm-hmm. uh, particularly those young people who were um, approaching exams. Um, we found that lots of young people were missing kind of sporting activities as well, you know, the, 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 the taking away of the options to have a game of football with your friends or, you know, to, to go to the, to, to the exercise class that you, you enjoyed doing with your friends was really, really difficult. But also, I think it's it's the the lack of kind of social connections generally that, that young people were were feeling during during that um, that period. Yeah, places of worship not available. Another key area of kind of support taken away from yes. many young people's lives. So perhaps you know it's disturbing to to see how many young people reported using negative coping strategies. Uh, but perhaps it's not surprising that so many young people were badly impacted during those lockdown days. Thank you, Stephen. Even when I was in lockdown, I was unable to see my family for six months straight. 
And you know what's the mind side by side online community? Uh, you know, is, is a place um, to listen and share, and to be heard, offering support to those who need it. How crucial is this support offered by peers, and what are the general aims of the project? Yeah, support offered by our peers can be really, really important. You know, for for a number of reasons. Um, yeah, it might be, for example, you don't necessarily feel that you can talk to your doctor about how you're feeling. You might feel you don't have that kind of relationship with your doctor. Mm-hmm. You might not even be able to get an appointment with your doctor. You know, it's, it's, they're pretty busy at the minute. Um, so actually seeking a little bit of support and a little bit of guidance from people who have got similar experiences to you. Mm-hmm. They might be from a similar background to you. They might be um, you know, having the same kind of feelings that you're feeling. And you can talk to them without a fear of judgment because you know that that other person is going through similar things to you, so that they are, they're not going to judge you. Um, so that kind of space where you can be accepted, where you can talk about what's happening to you, is really important. But also, you're able to, to perhaps you know share share with other people your experience and what you have learned you know during your mental health journey. And that sense of being of use to other people can be really valuable. You can give people a bit of a self-esteem boost it can be really important to connect and feel that you're giving back to other people uh, and helping other people mm-hmm. on their own mental health journey. Um, you know, and there's, there's all kinds of sort of peer projects ar- around the country. Uh, some of them are delivered by sort of voluntary and community groups like MIND. Um, the NHS offers some, some other community groups um, uh, might offer them as well. Uh, and, you know, they might not even be called peer support groups. They might be sort of advertised as kind of dropping coffee mornings but it's all about connecting with people that you know you're going to have a relationship with and you know that you can sort of speak with openly and they can listen to you. That's so truly said, Stephen. Uh, Stephen, sorry. Um, you know, sometimes your peers are actually the uh, best form of remedies when you're able to speak to them and they even give you sometimes really good advice. Thank you. And, you know, my last question to you today is Mind offers services for our own well-being as well as advice on how to support other people. How does support from loved ones affect affect the mental well-being of those in vulnerable positions? Yeah, I think that's a good question because I think what what we found at Mind is that, you know, as as I said earlier, not everyone wants to perhaps talk to their doctor about their mental health problem. They might feel a sense of shame or embarrassment. They might not be able to get an appointment. They might not have that kind of relationship with their doctor. So what we found is that actually a, a, a lot of people are experiencing a mental health problem or perhaps like talk to a friend first possibly mm-hmm. a family member maybe even their employer you know if they're taking time off work or, or whatever uh, they might talk talk to um, a religious leader in their life they might talk to someone else other than their doctor first up um, and that that's that's a really important first step in a conversation and I think if you are the person who's approached by someone you've got a really good opportunity to make to make a, a, a difference in someone's life by listening to them. And, you know, you don't need to be an expert on mental health. You, you don't need to, to, to be a doctor to have that discussion. I think it, it's, it's really important that if someone talks to you about their mental health, they say they're having a bad time, you can listen to them, listen to them without judgment, listen to them as a friend, mm-hmm. be kind to them. You know, being kind can make such a huge difference. You know, just listening, spending five or ten minutes listening to what, what's going on for someone. Um, and it might even be that there are some small practical things that you might be able to offer to, to, to help someone with. You know, if they're finding it difficult to, to leave the house and do shopping, 
you might want to offer to, to, to do the shopping for them once or twice a week. If they are wanting to, to talk about going to see the doctor, you might help them prepare for that, help them write down the kinds of things that they want to say to their doctor. You know, you don't need to be an expert in mental health and you don't need to fix everyone's problems to make a difference. Just one or two small things can make a huge difference for someone. I think that the other thing to bear in mind as well, though, is if you are in the position of, of helping a, a family member or a friend w with their mental health problem, that you need to take time out and look after yourself too. You know, mm -hmm. it, you, 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 we all want to, like, see our friends well, don't we? We all want to see our family members recover and be in a good place. But that can sometimes come at a, come at a personal cost as well. So I think it's really important that if we are supporting someone we are mindful of, of, of the toll that might have on us and take time to look after ourselves too. Um, Stephen, one question comes to mind while this discussion between you and um, between you and Saad, that what we, we did some programs over just after the pandemic and we found that a lot of people um, kind of dealt with their mental health challenges through, through faith. A lot of people mm -hmm. kind of... Um, found faith i suppose in in during the pandemic because they had so much time and 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 when they were looking towards their normal avenues where they look to for relief they couldn't find it because they couldn't even access it so god kind of kind of take took its place there uh, my question is just maybe it sounds strange i mean we believe in the teachings of the of the holy prophet who said none of you has believed until he loves for his brother what he loves for himself Mm -hmm. Do does organisations like Mind use faith as a as a as a mechanism to to kind of assist people in mental health issues? Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a really great question, um, and I think that what what is important for one person might not be as important for other people. Yes, but we we do know for people with faith, with uh, people with a strong spiritual identity. It's, it's a really important part of their whole sense of mental well-being. Mm. You know, as, as we, were, we were talking about lockdown, you know, it's it, in my family, some of my family members go to church, and that, that's a, a key part of their kind of identity and their community. Yeah. During lockdown, that, that was taken away from them. Mm. And that, I, I, I could see how tough that was for them to have that, that sort of spiritual element of their, their life and, and the, 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 the practice of, uh, of worship to not be veiled to them. Was that, that was their kind of peace of mind, wasn't it? That's where they went to find that peace. Yeah, yes, but and it's also the connection and the community that goes alongside that. Yep. So having having that, you know, that those two things sort of taken away was very difficult for for everyone. But yeah, I mean, it's your spiritual identity, your faith, you know, it's a very important part of your whole your whole sense of mental well being. It's very important. Wonderful. Stephen Buckley, thank you so much, sir, for taking time out for the Drive Time Show. I wish you a fantastic evening ahead. May peace be with you, sir. So, uh, peace upon you too. Thank you. Thank you so much. So some wise words he said there, you know. Yes. You, you don't need to be an expert. You, you, don't, need, you don't need to be a doctor to because speak to anyone. Because human, it's, it, it's a human. It should be, well, it is human nature to yes. be kindness, but you need to tap into it. As, as even we were mentioning before, we were schooling up community uh, community members, asking them how they were. That's a small um, aspect of it. Um, you're a young imam, and you 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 work within the community. Yes. And so <clears throat> kindness is something that's kind of part and parcel of your nature, and you kind of get people to tap into their kindness, don't you? I mean, we we, we always talk about you know 
um, looking after your brothers, your sisters, your friends, your yes. parents, the importance of parents, the importance of neighbors, um, community groups. And this kindness, it's, it's important that the true teaching of Islam isn't that you show kindness to people who are of your faith. In fact, true kindness and the true understanding is people who are not of you, but different people. Yes. Every human being is the same. Yes, that's correct. Um, for me, especially where I was tapping, especially with young children, I just go and ask them, mm. okay, what have you done today? When they, let's say, when they're coming to the mosque, ask them, for even for the class, ask them, okay, what have you learned today? Okay, what would what, you plan to do tomorrow? Are you free? Let's play football or something. They come up, they sit down with me for half an hour, 45 minutes. They can ask away any question they want to ask me. And I try my best and I, and I hope they I was able to answer the questions also at the same time. But I try with them, sit down on a brother level and it's like, okay, ask away. Hmm. What what do you think? I mean, What's there's in no your barriers. Mind? There's no barrier. You can ask me anything at that point. And they have asked me questions um, and some weird questions also sometimes. It's like, okay, there's no weird questions. You can ask me anything right now. The reason I ask you is because Stephen men mentioned a point which was so true yes. that there's a stigma attached to mental health. People yes. are scared and people are worried about being judged if they talk about, oh, I've got a mental health issue. So w how do you tackle it with the youth? For me to tackle it with the youth, because I, I, I recently graduated, so I'm still learning. The well, it's lifelong it's learning. Yeah. It's lifelong learning. But what I've learned so far is the speaking with them. Mm-hmm on an open level and not on an official platform as such just go up to them and ask them how they are be friends be friends with them just ask them hello I'm here I've been posted here I'm new here tell me how this uh, functions how can how, I help you how can I help you or yeah. how can I be of your service and then they ask and, and, and the thing is the judgment isn't it people are like oh what, um, why are you asking me these questions because they're afraid that you're going to kind of pin them and, yes. or you're going to label them you know sometimes you know even your appearance right yes it says it's really really for example if i'm going in a, in a tie suit a three-piece suit for example mm. and going up to youngsters and asking okay how can i help you they're like okay why is you're he creating he? a barrier i'm straight away creating a barrier with mm. them okay he's he's trying to be some big yeah. guy in front of me yeah and so okay you're you're someone else and i'm someone else they will stay reserved and they stay away from you and mm. if i'm going like well i'm wearing like, like a cardigan today a jumper and uh, jeans and some what's called normal mm. shoes and like, oh he's one of us yeah right you have to tap with them you should you should try and speak with them even when you call, and even one thing is even if you eat their food what they give offer you mm. that's one way of um, um, getting rid of that barrier Most definitely. Um, kindness undoubtedly influences the minds of those struggling throughout their day-to-day -day life as positive interactions help to ease their troubles. I mean, as uh, um, our young brother here, Asad, mentioned that, uh, you know, it's how you approach someone um, and, and to make sure that your behavior is positive um, because positivity breeds positivity. Yes. Um, in the context of science, kindness has a very objective, um, objectively positive influence as well as performing kind arts, uh, acts, releases oxyto oxytocin, um, oxytocin uh, uh, a feel-good hormone. I'm not a scientist. 
Is that an, <laughs> is that oxytocin or oxytocin? Well, you're more British than me. Oh, that was, what's <laughs> British got to do with science? Your, pronunci- uh, your pronunciation will be better than mine. Well, I uh, please call in 0208687778. Which what's what's the correct pronunciation? Um, um, I'm sure uh, people have understood. It's a feel-good hormone, helping to reduce stress and anxiety, as well as building self-confidence. The resulting serotonin, serotonin, the happy drug, also helps to lift your mood. With a healthy mind, the body remains healthy, as well as the immunity is boosted, helping to ward off change chances of disease. When we help each other, the feeling of self-satisfaction is improved, and we realize our potential to be able to help each other in a positive manner. Um, the Holy Quran effectively confirms and encourages the idea of kindness, bringing goodness in the following quote from chapter 55, verse 61. The reward of goodness is nothing but goodness. Um, young, young man, the, the, the perfect example for us of, dis, of, of talking about kindness and living kindness is the example of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of, 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 may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Um, tell me more. Tell me something about the acts of kindness and the example of the Holy Prophet. So kindness is a um, simple way to help not just yourself but everyone around you. It is a universal solution uh, in that regard. School of Kindness teaches young children the different ways to be kind and its importance. As research, some uh, suggest, some uh, suggest that even witnesses kind uh, witnessing kindness releases feel good hormones as you have mentioned them um, oxytocin mm. right mm-hmm. and to lift our moods uh, and it does not have to be direct towards uh, directed towards us uh, specifically kind people have lower stress as a result meaning they have healthier lives mentally and physically and you know uh, you have mentioned regarding the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and the this is a prime example of good character for all Muslims. Um, even outs- um, even outsiders to Islam recognize the extraordinary benevolent nature of our Holy Prophet Sallallahu A Western writer, W.C. Taylor, said this about the Holy Prophet Sallallahu in his book, The History of Muhammadin- Muhammadinism. 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 Yes, and its sects. So I'll quote him and... And, and and so great was he liberally to the poor that he often left his household unprovided unpro- nor did he content himself with relieving their wants he entered into conversations with them and expressed a warm sympathy for their suffering he was a fir- friend and a faithful ally so, yes um you know, you, you see, he was he was the perfect friend, perfect ally to yeah. everyone. Yes. Um, you know, and because because he was known for his kindness, and he was known in all um, um, uh, people from all faiths. I mean, when he um, when he went to Medina, when we talked about migration earlier, he migrated from Mecca to Medina. Uh, and Medina was people of uh, there were Arabs, there were Muslims, there were Jews, Jews, there were Christians, there were people of all faiths yes. who used to live there. And because of his truthfulness, his kindness, and his uh, uh, his character, um, because he showed he showed mercy, he was uh, a mercy. He was called mercy. the mercy of mankind, mercy to mankind. And part and parcel of that mercy is to be kind. Yes. Uh, hence, why people from all faiths um, were kind of attracted to his character 
it, it was like that magnetism um, he had um, because he um, he followed the the Holy Quran to you know to 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 perfection. Yes, he he was a embodiment of the Quran. That's right. You know, even when you when you touched on faith, I just remembered. You know, uh, in our mosque in Battle for Two, mm-hmm. there in the dome it says Allah Bizikrillah Tatmainul Kulu, which mm-hmm. means um, it is in the remembrance of Allah that hearts can find comfort. So that's the one way you know, of um, releasing your stress in my opinion having a connection with Allah the Almighty and asking for his help at the same time because Allah the Almighty says in chapter 14 verse 8 if you are grateful I will surely bestow more favors on you but if you are ungrateful then know that my punishment is severe in indeed so Allah says if you're not kind you God is not pleased with you. Yes, simple wording. It's simple as that. Simple wording, uh, as you can see. Let's go and talk to our, uh, our last guest of the afternoon. We have with us Jamie Thurston, who is CEO and founder of Fifty Two Lives. Good afternoon, welcome, Assalamualaikum, and peace be on you, Jamie. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Is it Jamie or Jamie? Jamie. Jamie. Ah, thank you for correcting that. Um, kindness has the power to change people's lives. How can kindness be encouraged? and promoted in daily life especially in the the kind of the the, the times we're living in at the moment um it, it it you know it seems to be kind of um disappearing well i think first of all looking after ourselves where we can um because you're right life is hard for so many people at the moment so i think giving ourselves a break and making sure we are looking after our own physical and mental health taking time to do the things we love, taking time to relax and recharge. Because when we're kind to ourselves, it puts us in a much better state of mind to go out into the world and be kind to other people. Because that way, we can much more easily incorporate kindness just into our day-to-day life and we're more able to just approach every situation, every interaction we have with other people from a place of kindness because we've looked after ourselves first. Thank you, Jamie. And my question to you is how crucial is kindness to general well-being, especially mental health? It it is absolutely crucial. Of course, I'm going to say that. I run a kindness (laughs) charity, but I think it is absolutely (laughs) crucial for not just our individual well-being, but also our our collective well-being. Because, you know, as a society, kindness is what ties us. We're much stronger together. And, and, you know, as individuals, there's been Mm -hmm. so much research that shows that, you know, kindness helps to improve our physical health, our mental health in all sorts of ways. It it releases amazing chemicals in our body that helps us feel happier. Um, it helps to relieve stress and anxiety. Um, it actually reduces our blood pressure. So kindness is so much more yes. than just a nice thing to do. It's really essential for our well-being. Yes, you know, as you just mentioned, together we are much stronger. So after the pandemic, there are many people who are in need of support. Even many young people, if 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 I if I may say. What services have been offered by 52 Lives during this time? Uh, well, I mean, the, the nature of our charity, what we do is we help people in need every week with all sorts of things. So, you know, we provide furniture, um, carpet, toys. But um, in recent times, we've been trying to help a larger number of people where we can. So we ran some extra projects. Mm-hmm. Um, we bought, for example, we bought school shoes for 600 children recently. Um, Whereas as the weather gets colder, we're helping to provide warm coats and winter weight bedding to help keep people warm. Um, and, you know, donations uh, are 
a bit less at the moment than they than they typically would be because so many people are struggling now. But we do have a really wonderful community of supporters who do what they can to help. So oh. we're we're in a really good position. Jamie, in your experience, I mean, again, just the thought comes to mind, and in my experience, I always find it that people who actually have less tend to be more kind. Is that is that true? Well, I think. Or oh, is that an unfair question? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's hard to answer on, on a whole and, and stereotype, but I know personally in our charity, um, it's very common for people that we've helped um, who don't have very much to then um, go on and give to other people that we're helping in the future. So donations always pop up from from names that I recognize and people mm-hmm. that we've helped in the past who I know don't have very much, but they're really grateful for the, for the support that they had and they want to to pass that on to somebody else. That's which cool. is really lovely to see because I think we, you know, our charity gives people tangible help. We give people things, but we like to think that the most important thing we do is spread kindness and help people see that that the world is a good place and and encourage people to want to be kind to each other. That's great. You know, when you just mentioned the word kindness, so what are the aims of your kindness workshops held in schools, and what are the benefits effects of teaching kindness, especially to young children? Yeah, so we run we run free kindness workshops for children in primary schools around the UK we, we work with about 50,000 children a year now and the aim really is to empower children and help them realize that the little choices that they make every day really matter because we think if we can help children understand that kindness is not just a way to help other people um, but it's also a way that they can improve their own physical and mental health because I just think what an incredible tool that would be for a young person to grow up with knowing that kindness is a way for them to help themselves and also help other people um, Jamie you you guys you 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 do fantastic work with with the in in 52 lives i mean what what what's the what's the theme i mean we we're, we're a faith based station and with us we talk of faith in all aspects from all people and for with people of all walks of life and it's something i was talking to stephen about who is the head of information for mind where a lot of a, a, a lot of people find um kind of solace and peace and tranquility in um, and they learn about kindness from their respective beliefs is is that do, do you use belief systems and faiths as part and parcel of your training to reach out to people especially youngsters or is that something you kind of tend to stay away because in the society we live in people say religion and politics is not something we want to get into um, is, is that a mechanism you you kind of explore um, in our workshops, we don't. We we keep it about kindness, and we try and stay quite secular, mm-hmm. um, especially because we work in all different schools, um, and we work with children who have all different faiths. So we try and make it um, generically just Generic about being uh, yeah. generically about being a good person, helping each other, which I think is covered um, in most religions. Anyway. It is. It, but hence, um, hence my point that when yeah. I mean religion, I don't mean. Um, you know, um, specifically mentioning a religion. It's like within the Amdi Muslim community, uh, when we talk of religion, we talk of uh, Prophet Confucius, we talk of Prophet Krishna, we talk of Prophet Buddha. We, we, we listen and talk to the teachings of all the prophets from all the religions. Um, and and hence, hence the thought came to mind that at end of the day, um, you know, if you can't respect other people's religions, you can't really respect your own. Um, but what I wanted to kind of, uh, my question was based around if if you ever use um, um, religion or faith 
um, as a as a tool. But I can understand um, why you you uh, stick to the secular way and, and and kind of focus on kindness. Um, Jamie, thank you so much uh, for taking time out and coming on to the Drive Time Show. I wish you a fantastic evening ahead. May peace be with you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Um, Sorry, before I, I before you start your conversation, I'm cutting you here. You know when you're speaking about the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. May and, peace and blessings of Allah be upon. And him. I was I went blank at the moment there. I was like, okay, I was like, I, I don't remember anything right now suddenly, and. Now, when we were even speaking to um, Jamie and she's speaking about kindness and it clicked in my mind, once a narration there is, a mother promised her child for a date, a dry date, mm-hmm. and even though she was unable to afford it at that time, and when the Holy Prophet ﷺ found about this, what are you promising to that small child? He said, a date, and he, and he goes, Holy Prophet ﷺ goes, if, remember, if you're promising something, you should also fulfill it. The same, um, you should also fulfill it. And if you're not fulfilling that very promise, you're committing a sin. So you know, this is the, um, the examples the Holy Prophet is giving us, and he's saying we should always you know, help out our children, guide them. Then, and the guidance bit—that's the kindness. If you're guiding your children to the right path and telling them the truth, and next generations who their children and their children onwards they will be following the right path and be more kinder to the society what's been your last act of kindness let's talk about you young man my, <laughs> my act last act of kindness that's a difficult one <laughs> well okay you know I was by my boss right and he goes to me today and it's our ultra side he goes to me okay you're going Nottingham tomorrow I was like, uh, that, was ki- that was kind of him. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay. But Brother Nisar is like, is, is, is he staring at the radio station? No, I was like, I'm going to beat up Kayuma next time I see him. I was like, I was like Nisar, you know, Nisar, which is, uh, I, it's my holiday tomorrow. I, I, get, I get a day off in a week, right? Mm-hmm. To spend with the family and do some other work I have to do. And it's like, it's tomorrow's Wednesday, you know? I take the day off on Wednesday. He's like, yeah, d- do this. Okay, don't come office tomorrow in the morning. And uh, go Nottingham, and then he goes okay. I was like, that's fine. I'll do this. And yeah, I, don't know, I think that's a small <laughs> kindness there. But he gave me the day off on Thursday, so that's his kindness. So Nisar, Nisar, he he gave me the ki- he showed me kindness instead today. So that was his <laughs> his kindness. kindness. Hold on, I'm asking, what's your well, act last of kindness? Well, you've, well, just told, you've just told me how Brother Nisar was kind to you. Well, he's giving like I'm going Nottingham for him tomorrow. In the last on on, on, a, on a short time base, he gave me. He, okay, he told me today around two o'clock before mm-hmm. I was coming to Voice of Islam. So okay, Nottingham tomorrow, and get your tickets confirmed. I just got a message just during the show. Your tickets have been confirmed. So that's my kindness for just for just for today. Yeah, <laughs> I, you, you can you can interpret that as kindness. If that, <laughs> That's if, my kindness. If that makes you happy, go for well, it. it Every, everyone you meet is fighting a battle, and and remember, you never know what's going on in that person's mind. So always be kind. Um, you know, kindness uh, um, is uh, is it can be reached. Reaching out to someone with a smile is kindness. Um, uh, you know, asking somebody how they are is kindness. S- saying peace be on you to someone is kindness. Yes. There are so many 
different ways of showing kindness. Um, and no act of kindness, no matter how small it is, will ever go to waste. Um, the importance of kindness lies in its singular ability to unlock our shared humanity, whether in a society or the Muslim Brotherhood. Concerning social order, actions of kindness helps us to create a system of individuals and groups who may help us later, building a crucial trust system. A new study has found that when we witness kindness, we are inspired by it to be kind ourselves. That means that when people model kind and helpful behavior, it has a healthy impact on spreading goodness in the community and society as a whole. Kindness can also benefit businesses as people are likely to go to the extra mile for employers or colleagues who show them kindness and a healthy social work environment can lead to better productivity which is a solution to the problem of COVID with long times of unpredictability, as we have discussed throughout the hour. As I mentioned earlier to, to, to our guest, Stefan, it was the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, himself who said, none of you has believed until he loves for his brother what he loves for himself. Benevolence, love and well-wishing are the, are the very essences of belief, of belief in the faith of Islam especially in the context of a flourishing society. According to Public Health England, 14.3 million working days a year are lost due to stress, anxiety or depression. An act of kindness creates a ripple effect, encouraging other people to be kind to others and creating a more positive and productive society that eases stress and anxiety. Kindness holds much more importance after the COVID pandemic, as vulnerable people at those experiencing anxiety for the first time are able to feel that they are welcomed due to the kindness around them, especially in work environments. Muslims are taught to seek refuge in Allah Almighty when in need of comfort and to follow the example of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. The Holy Prophet said, I know a word the saying of which will cause him to relax. If he does say it, if he says, I seek refuge with Allah from Satan, then all his anger will go away. When we seek refuge in Allah, we should say the words with understanding and reflection and not simply recite them. Don't just go on words, action, speak louder than words. That's good. Brother That's Saad, what said. Your, your 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 words before we come to an end of the show? So, Kayum, Brother Kayum, my words before we end this show today is the, the kindness we show to our loved ones, neighbours, colleagues, friends, you name them, even the smallest, minutest um, gesture of love, kindness, that will have a big impact on those people and it might even cheer them up for the day and they remember it and they even might return it one day to you and but don't do this just that they will return it back to you just do it out of your own love that's my main message just would do kindness out of love chapter 21 verse 108 and we have sent thee not but as a mercy for all people the holy prophet may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him was sent by Allah Almighty as a mercy to all mankind. Let's remember that and let's read about him. If you're interested, um, 
please, there's a book called Muhammad, Life of Muhammad. Yes. Um, you can access that book from our library, which you can access from alislam.org. Or if you go to Google and type in Life of Muhammad and you type in the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, um, you'll be able to access that book. Um, or it will give you a contact number um, and uh, and uh, it will put you through to somebody who will be able to um, get the book for you. Or if you can't do that, give us a call, 0208-687-7878. We would love to get a copy of Life of Muhammad to you so you can, you can understand what we've been talking about for the past hour. Um, before we finish, I want to thank our producers, um, Faryal Nasser and Baria Nasser, for today's shows. I want to thank all of our guests, Jamie, um, Claire, Ste- uh, Stefan, um, we had uh, uh, Sarah, um, we had, um, and we had so many other guests, I forgot their names now, that's just so <laughs> rude, I'm not going to do that, that's just terrible, um, this, is, this is mental health for me, this is, uh, we were just talking to, who were we just talking to? It was Stefan and Claire Mosley, that's it. Claire Mosley, Peter Walsh and and Sarah Berry. Thank you to all of our guests for taking time out and coming on to the Drive Time Show. Thank you to you for listening. Thank you to Brother Saad for uh, for joining me today. Thank you to Brother Hanif for taking time out and joining us remotely. Um, I know he... um, I know he's, he's, he's a busy man, but he took time out and came onto the show with us. Thank you to you for listening. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to all of you gentlemen. Thank you to our producers. Um, thank you to you for listening. Please uh, forgive any shortcomings on our part. Uh, please remember us in your prayers. Um, until next time, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all.